0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Paolo Fragameni, CEO of Socket Supply, a developer tool that's raised over $3 million in funding. Paolo, thanks for chatting with me today, and how'd I do on pronouncing your name?
1: <laughs> Pretty good. It's not easy. It's Italian. Sicilian. It's one of those long Sicilian names. Nice. Well, glad to hear I did okay. Now, let's start with a
0: quick summary of who you are and a bit about your background.
1: Yeah, sure. Let's see. In 2010, I left MIT to found my first startup, which was a platform as a service called Nojitsu. And since then, you know, I've had some interesting successes and failures, uh, but, uh, you know, I've been working on infrastructure and developer tools for over a decade. And I've also been involved in peer-to-peer communities for even longer, more than 15 years.
0: Nice. Very cool. And a couple of questions that we'd like to ask just to better understand, you know, what makes you tick as a founder and as a leader? Is there a CEO that you're studying the most right now? And if so, you know, who are they and, and what are you learning from them?
1: Well. I try to avoid that kind of thing. I try to listen to people objectively and decide if what they're doing and saying makes sense. But at the end of the day, I mean, I I think that founders are just contributors. And, you know, founder isn't anything without a team. So, you know, if I can say teams maybe are who I would look up to, I think that Tailscale is a really amazing team. I mean, Oxide Computer is a really very cool team. These are remarkable teams. I definitely get inspired by their work. They're solving super hard, really meaningful problems that drive the field of computing forward.
0: And are there any specific takeaways that you've learned from these teams that you're applying with Socket Supply? Definitely. I think cultural values. I think technical
1: values. I think research that they've contributed to the field. We've definitely been able to leverage the corpus of you know, research that, has gone into the field, I think, I would say,
0: yeah. Nice, very cool. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had the greatest impact on you as a founder? And you know, this can be a business book or it can be a personal book as well? Probably the Improvised Munitions Handbook, or
1: I would say maybe the Anarchist Cookbook. I remember I found the Improvised Munitions Handbook at a garage sale, and it was vintage. It was from the 1950s. And then later, I traded it to a street punk for the anarchist cookbook, and these things are cute compared to what's online these days, but as a young person, I found them really fascinating and inspiring because they made, really, they made me kind of realize how anyone can learn and teach and build anything. Nice.
0: Those are two books I've not heard of. It's refreshing to have something other than The Hard Thing About Hard Thing or, you know, Peter T. Oh, that's a great
1: one. book. <laughs> so, I mean, I've nice read, to hear I've some read, read books. all of those things. Yeah, I
0: mean, these are all really good books, but I mean, we've all read them, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's nice to hear something new. Now let's talk a bit more about Socket Supply. So what's the origin story behind the company and what's the high-level pitch? You know, what are customers paying you to do for them? So
1: our aha moment came... I guess when we started seeing these Web3 products and we said, wow, like (laughs) these are really bad. They're not decentralized, they're SaaS products, and they're investor-subsidized EC2 instances running on AWS, and this is a huge problem because it forces most of these products into negative pricing, and we thought, okay, people want a decentralized web, and there's a demand for it, and they also wanna be liberated from sort of cost of the cloud. And so we decided we would try to make that happen. So we told some investors that we thought there was a really significant technology gap in this entire space, and they agreed, and we raised a little over 3.5 million, and we got to work for a little over a year we went heads down and we coded. We all come from peer-to-peer background, and um, you know we've been working on distributed systems for a very long time, and so this was really natural for us. And so here we are today with a whole open source runtime that allows the average web developer to write apps that connect directly to each other The way that it works is, you know, developers use HTML and CSS and JavaScript, you know, all the things that they know and love to write cross-platform native applications that run on desktop or mobile. So you write the code once and you literally run it anywhere. Yeah, and so then we expose uh, peer-to-peer APIs so that, you know, apps can connect directly to each other. And this is all built on UDP and Bluetooth. So local first is obviously a part of this agenda as well. A year and a half later, here we are with something that we're going to market with and something that you can actually truly build decentralized applications with. Something that is remarkable in the way that, you know, we've always been sort of in this landlord-tenant relationship with the cloud. And that's really prohibitive for a ton of different reasons, you know, specifically the cost and the complexity and the the knowledge that it necessitates in order to, to take anything to market.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And what types of developers are you seeing you know, really adopt the product and embrace the product? Is it, you know, a certain vertical or a certain company size? Or are these just you know, independent or freelancers? What does that look like?
1: Well, we're seeing obviously public sector startups, founders, creatives, you know, basically anybody who wants to build anything that they would normally build for the web, mm-hmm. they're realizing that they can build it with the socket runtime, but not pay any rent to anyone. So, yeah, anyone who builds web apps or software, native apps, they're all interested in what we're doing. But recently, we've been talking to the folks in the German government. There's certain things I can't say about it. But the other things that I can say is that, you know, cloud vendors are expensive. And there's this due diligence process that's really, really, you know, sophisticated and lengthy. It takes a lot of time. In the U.S., it's known as FedRAMP. Mm -hmm. And most countries they have something like this. It's expensive, it takes a lot of time, and it could be prohibitive to shipping anything. So now, imagine that you don't need the cloud at all, and imagine your IT org controls everything. Suddenly, you have autonomy, and there's a smaller surface area and and less potential for
0: incidents. Mm, interesting. I feel like that's becoming more of an active conversation, right? Like the move away from the cloud. I can't remember... What's the parent company of Basecamp? Is it 37 Signals? Yeah. Oh, them at all? He just had a, their CEO just had a blog post of why they're leaving the cloud. Did you see that? Yeah. And it's really understandable. It's an
1: insane cost. And it's not just the cost of like, well, what does it cost monthly, right? Because for some people, that it's a trivial cost, you know, especially with, uh, you know, free tier, it can be pretty inexpensive. But, you know, once you actually start to get to the point where you actually have demand, then it becomes a non-trivial cost. In fact, like, it becomes a cost that, again, you know, can be prohibitive.
0: And what are you doing to, you know, convince customers, convince developers to move away from AWS? I see that on your website, you know, transition from AWS to P2P, like, that has to be, you know, a hard competitor to go against, right? AWS is very established. They have a lot of resources. So what are you, you know, saying to them and what are you really you know, communicating to them that's you know making them willing to make that kind of jump? Well,
1: I think the timing is everything, you know, especially in a downturn when everybody's stock is in the toilet, you know, say we have these very sage C-suite executives, you know, asking, where's the burn? and the cloud is a huge burn mm-hmm. and supplementing cloud infrastructure with peer to peer can bring your cloud costs to zero and you know this is just a foot in the door when the cloud was created there was a fraction of the hardware in the world right aws it made tons of sense where they were there to provide high availability and, you know, today they're doing more of the same, right? They have roughly 38 data centers and I don't know how many availabilities, like 85 or ninety availability zones, 27 regions, I think, you know, and about, I think maybe 50 000 to 80,000 servers in each data center. So roughly like 3 million servers. But all of that pales in comparison to the compute and the storage that's in the wild, right? There's about 15 billion mobile devices today, you know, three or five something billion laptops, and just an enormous amount of IoT devices and sensors are in everything. And there's so much hardware in the world right now. And the more hardware there is, the more it can be connected, and the more it will be connected. And the less that we're making these round trips back to the data center, right? These are expensive, and they're really super complicated. And so, you know, all of this hardware is forming these, like, ad hoc peer-to-peer networks, and the cloud is really going to be sort of more used for supercomputing tasks, and all this stuff's really going to move away from the cloud. It's something that really is already happening, and we're Mm -hmm. just here putting tools onto it so people can leverage that fact. But, okay, so when I say this, there's some people who, it's intuitive, they get it, they're like, I totally get that. Then there's some nerds who have sweaty palms and they're they're starting to get really angry because they're saying, like, oh, you can't compare a smartphone or a laptop with an AWS server. And like, of course you can't. Like, none of the hardware in the wild is a one-to-one replacement for a server, right? If you try to monopolize a user's resources and treat it like a server, the user's just going to delete your app, right? But it's unnecessary to try to do that even because... You know, even at a small scale, small contributions or bursts of being online or, or storage and compute, all of this adds up when there's this much hardware out in the wild. So you know, imagine everybody scrolling Instagram was forming a peer-to-peer CDN. You could cut bandwidth and storage and caching, all those kinds of costs. You could cut all of that out of your burn. And imagine people all scrolling Twitter at the same time doing something similar. Now imagine if you could... Piggyback; these networks could piggyback off of each other. So now your average web developer can do this. And that's what we've created, and that's the problem that we've solved, is like making peer-to-peer available to the average web developer so that you can escape the complexity and the cost of the cloud. And I think a lot of people see this really clearly, really quickly, and it becomes intuitive.
0: And what are you doing to really stand out and you know cut through all the noise? Because I feel like P2P computing got a lot of hype, obviously, with you know crypto and blockchain, all of that stuff. So how are you separating from all of that noise and all of that buzz that's been created by that?
1: I don't really notice the noise. I don't really care what people are talking about, what the hype cycles look like. I mean, you know, I hear about things. But I think when you have something that clearly solves a problem, and it has a very clear market, and that market has a demand for it, then there's not much of a conversation other than is your team capable of shipping that solution? So we raised, like I said, like three and a half, about a year and a half ago. We have really low burn. We have about 30 months of runway left, so we haven't really had an urgency for you know, conversations about raising. I mean, we still take calls from people, and we still have these conversations. We have about like 6 million soft-circled for follow-on for a seed. Like we'll probably raise a seed. But like I said, it hasn't been hard for us to do that because I think that what we're doing, especially now that we've gone past the pre-seed and we we have something tangible that people are actually building with.
0: And has it been tempting for you at all to go out and, you know, try to raise... FU money, like a lot of other startups and a lot of other founders have done over the last couple of years, because it sounds like you're taking a very disciplined approach to building with, you know, 30 months of burn. That's, uh, that's a lot. And that has to feel good. And I'm sure you feel, you know, or hopefully you can sleep better at night than (laughs) some of those other companies out there. But was that tempting for you to go down that other path? Or did you always know this is how you wanted to build the company? Well, I mean, with interest rates at zero, like,
1: I mean, it was a party, people were doing crazy things, it was insane valuations, like, it was very easy to, and very tempting, yeah, to take money, but, I mean, there's consequences to taking money, and I think that you need to have a very good reason and really specific plan for taking that money, so, I mean, I've seen people get into a lot of trouble taking more than they needed to do what they're gonna do right? And we also see a path to profitability in the very near future. So we're really looking at it like, you know, only take what you need. And, you know, we started to see really good traction with people building on, you know, what we have so far, you know, for instance, MetaMask is in the process of rewriting their application using our, our platform, the Socket Runtime. You know, we've had discussions with Bloomberg about how bloated Electron is, and, you know, the potential of replacing it. The Signal's desktop team, You know, we're talking to these guys about, you know, they're actively evaluating what we're doing. You know, when we're talking to these different types of, you know, obviously a lot of smaller companies, those who are also in our our portfolio. But you know, we've recently just open sourced this stuff and we're starting to see interest very quickly at a very good rate. And obviously this, our open source is a funnel to our our paid products. So we're, we're happy with the rate, with the velocity of interest in what we're doing. But it is a very new space, right? You know, peer-to-peer is a whole new class of of software that most people don't have a lot of experience building. And, you know, we've aimed to make it very simple and very easy for people to dive into. But, you know, it's going to necessitate a whole new class of tools. So, you know, as a company, we're there to provide those things. And I think, yeah, we see a very short and very realistic path to profitability.
0: And are there any numbers you can share just in terms of growth that you're seeing or adoption yeah
1: i mean they don't really sound like impressive numbers but like tens of new contributors who are actually like really competent programmers coming in from you know the outside and just becoming active contributors is is actually like a really great metric and i think especially you know when some of them have tens of thousands of github followers so github followers are actually really hard to earn like a lot of companies go out and they'll purchase Twitter followers. That's really easy. Like really, Twitter followers have almost no value in this industry anymore, but something like a GitHub follower is different because that's an engineer saying, "Oh, this person's producing something valuable. I think i'm I'm interested in that and I'm going to follow them. They're harder to earn. And it's harder to game that system, so they kind of represent a better metric. So you know, if you have somebody who, you know like we do like with you know tens of thousands of github followers who says oh this is an interesting project and they you know they start working on it that's an interesting metric i don't like to use these types of metrics at all because we're talking to maybe an engineer who has no avatar at all or something like that and then you discover oh this is the vp of engineering for this like slightly large company and you know that might not be representative because then you have like 12 people on their team And then there, turns out, they're all using the platform too. And they're building their next version of the application with that. So it's like there's a lot of hidden relationships that don't get on a visible graph. So I never like to really think about these kind of metrics. I think like some of our internal metrics for gauging like do people care about like what we're doing and how is it being received is some of the people who have been in the space for a very long time taking interest and actively picking up The product and trying to use it, right? We have a few folks who are senior staff engineers at Uber who are interested, and they've joined in our channel, and they're talking to us, and they're experimenting with it. I think things like that, those are hard to describe metrics, but they're really significant, I think, and that's that's really good validation for
0: us internally. Nice. I love it. Last question here for you. If we zoom out in the future, what's the three-year vision for the company?
1: Well, (laughs) <laughs> I see our tools, and I see our open source having significantly displaced cloud services and the things that are built on them. So all these platforms of service, uh, all these SaaS products—you know, where you paid rent at one point on a cloud service, mm-hmm. you'll be spending that money developing features on your app instead. And you'll sort of be free of vendor lock-in and uh, you'll have regained this autonomy that you lost, you know, being a tenant, paying rent to the cloud, you know, Mm -hmm. happily using our tools.
0: Amazing. I love it. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. So before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you and the team build, where's the best place for them to go?
1: They can join into a whole bunch of different places. So at the footer on our website, there's a bunch of different options there's github there's discord and in discord people can ask to join we have a fully peer-to-peer completely decentralized absolutely uses no servers uh chat application which you can Mm -hmm. join in or you know obviously twitter there's a whole host of whatever works for you
0: amazing well thanks a lot for your time i really appreciate it it was really fun hearing about what you're building and wish you best of luck in executing on this vision
1: yeah good talking with you we'll talk soon
0: take care